I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. We're doing something a little different this week. Elizabeth and I were asked to speak to the Conservative Women's Network and give a preview of cases coming up at SCOTUS this spring. So here's that conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, We're pleased to be here today with you. So as Michelle mentioned, we are the ladies of SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court, from the serious to the silly. If you want to hear about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's workout routine, tune in. If you want to hear about the big cases the court is going to hear and serious arguments, tune in. Uh, So Tiffany, the court is in session today for their conference as we speak. They Tell are. us what is going on. Yeah, so the court's been out for a little while, but they're back today. A few times a month, they hold a private conference where they decide which cases to take and which cases to deny. And no one is allowed at these conferences, no clerks, no secretaries, um, no one at all. And the junior justice has to has a lot of duties um, during this conference. And so Poor Neil Gorsuch right now. Yes, so it's <laughs> Justice Gorsuch. So he has to get the door if someone knocks or get um, the justice's coffee or if one of the justices forgets their glasses, he has to um, go retrieve them. <laughs> um, so at this point, they're, they're going to be deciding cases um, that they'll add to the court's docket for next term. Um, but we're about halfway through this term, and there are some pretty big cases coming up. Yeah. Um, so one of the most uh, looked forward to case is Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar um, with this case. It's a very important First Amendment case that will determine whether the government can force objectors to pay union fees. So in, 19, in a 1977 case called Abood against Detroit uh, Board of Education, the Supreme Court held that public employees can be required to pay union fees, or what they call agency fees, even if they have opted out of joining the union. Um, and in these so-called agency shop arrangements, a single uni- union representative um, is vested with the power to represent every public employee to speak and contract for them, even the ones who don't want to join or support the union's advocacy. Um, and those who choose not to join have to pay um, the fee for their fair share of the union cost. And Janice is the, la- the latest case asking the court to overrule the Abood decision and declare public sector agency fee arrangements unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Um, so there are two recent cases um, Knox versus SEIU in 2012 and Harris v. Quinn in 2014 that called the Abu decision um, into question. Some of the justices said that this uh, decision imposes a significant impingement on an employees' First Amendment free speech and association rights, and some of them were re- uh, willing to reconsider. Um, and we thought, finally, um, that all the justices would overrule Abood in the 2015-2016 term in Friedrichs uh, versus California Teachers Association. Um, this was a group of California um, teachers who challenged the law. But then Justice Scalia passed away, and the court split four to four on the issue in that case. Um, so Mark Janis is the latest to bring his case. He's an Illinois state employee, um, and he doesn't want to join the union, and he doesn't want to pay the agency fees. Um, So the governor of Illinois is trying to um, make some reforms, and the union is fighting against against these reforms, um, and Mr. Janus doesn't want to subsidize um, the union's efforts here. Um, And under Illinois law, um, the exclusive representative um, can not only speak on matters of contracting for the employees, um, but also... um, 
is able to force the employees to pay for its advocacy in other areas. And this is especially concerning since it's likely that those that don't want to join the union don't like their political advocacy and lobbying. So to put this into perspective, um, Ed Whalen pointed out in NRO that in 2014, the American Federation of State County and municipal employees. People call them AFSCAM. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's a great, great acronym. Um, But they donated um, close to half a million dollars to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, and those funds, in turn, were used to support political candidates who support abortion um, and the abortion agenda. And I think this is obvious why this is a problem for objectors. Um, So what are the consequences for a win in Janus? The unions claim that they're going to lose a lot of money and that they'll not be as effective in collective bargaining. Um, But studies show, especially I think there's a recent study from the Mackinac Center, um, that the unions are nonetheless going to survive and this isn't going to be a huge problem from them. Um, unions also claim that there's a free rider problem, that not, non-paying members will still get the benefits of the union without um, paying. And I think the, the free ride analogy is so weird here. I mean, if someone kidnaps you and forces you into their car, yeah, you're getting a free ride somewhere, but um, it's one that you don't, that you don't want. Um, and the Supreme Court in the past has held that free rider arguments are generally insufficient to overcome First Amendment um, objections. Um, and it also has to make some assumptions about the free rider argument, like the court would have to presume that non-member employees actually benefit from their representative advocacy. Um, and that's not necessarily true. Um, but anyway, exclusive representation forces the individual um, to accept the agent, to accept their advocacy, and contractual terms that they may oppose or that may not actually benefit them. So I think um, this is a much anticipated um, case for a lot of people, um, and we, we hope the court finally overrules Abood. And I'd also like to point out that State Policy Network and the Liberty Justice Center, which is one of the organizations representing Mark Janice and his Supreme Court case, they are organizing a rally on February 26th at the Supreme Court on the steps to show support for Mr. Janice and for workers' rights. Uh, you can register by visiting standwithworkers.org uh, if you want to join them that morning. So next up, another free speech uh, case, Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky. It's going to be argued in uh, two weeks. And this is brought to you by our friends from the Pacific Legal Foundation. So when was the last time a T-shirt changed the way you voted? How about made you feel intimidated? Probably never, but the state of Minnesota thinks you're much more impressionable. It is so concerned that it prohibited voters from wearing hats, T-shirts, buttons, or any other item with a message that could be construed as political when they go to the polls on Election Day. So the law does not define what political means. Election officials in Minnesota came up with guidelines to to give uh, to their poll workers to help them determine what counts, including no-brainers such as, you know, a hat that says, vote Trump. That, that would not be allowed. Uh, but the guidelines also included issue-oriented material designed to influence or impact voting and material promoting a group with recognizable political views. So enter Andrew Selick. He's involved with the local Tea Party in Minnesota. He wore a Please ID Me button and a Don't Tread on Me t-shirt on Election Day in 2010. He's quite a character. Uh, So he was turned away twice from the polls, and finally he was allowed to vote on his third trip to the polls that day. Uh, But poll workers said they were taking down his information for possible prosecution by the state. 
So violators of this law are subject to civil fines of up to $5,000 and possible criminal charges. So pretty, pretty steep interest here. Uh, Minnesota claims its law is necessary to protect Minnesotans' right to vote in an orderly and controlled environment without confusion, interference, or distraction. But the state already prohibits campaigning within 100 feet of polling places. It prohibits transporting voters to the polling place in exchange for votes. Uh, It also prohibits threatening, bribing, or otherwise coercing people to vote for or against a candidate or a ballot question. So these are all reasonable measures uh, intended to safeguard the integrity of elections, allow voters to cast their ballots without being intimidated or pressured, and uh, to ensure peace and order at the polls. So the Supreme Court has recognized that some limits, such as these, uh, on speech are necessary at the polls. It upheld Tennessee's ban on soliciting votes and handing out campaign materials on the sidewalk outside of polls in in a case in the early 90s. So there's no question that states have legitimate interest in preventing intimidation and violence and ensuring the integrity of elections. But that's not what Minnesota's law does. It's too broad. It's too vague. It can't stand up to First Amendment scrutiny. And Minnesota, unfortunately, isn't alone. There are at least nine other states with very similar bans. So let me give you some examples from recent elections to make this concrete for you how this plays out. During the 2016 election... Uh, Arkansas prohibited Reagan Bush t-shirts. I don't think either of them were on the ballot. Uh, And I Miss Bill t-shirts. And I don't know if people still miss Bill, but (laughs) back then they were. They were missing Bill. In 2012, uh, poll workers cracked down on people wearing MIT sweatshirts, as in Massachusetts Institute of Technology, because Mitt Romney, M-I-T-T, was on the ballot. In 2008... A woman in Texas was singled out for wearing an Alaska t-shirt. So this was a t-shirt that had like a bear holding a fish with a stream in the background. And it said Alaska because Sarah Palin was on the ticket. Yeah. The respondent in this case, the elections manager for Ramsey County, Minnesota, said that a Minnesota Vikings jersey could be considered too political for the polls if, for example, there was a question on the ballot about funding for a new stadium. So if pro football teams and the Gadsden flag are out, what else falls on the wrong side of the political line? Could poll workers ban someone from wearing a Love Wins t-shirt because it's associated with the LGBT movement? How about a flag pin? A Che Guevara bag? A Choose Life t-shirt? One of those pink women's hat, uh, women's march hats with the cat ears? There's nothing violent, coercive, or intimidating about any of these items, yet under Minnesota and at least nine other states' laws, all of these could easily be prohibited. So the Supreme Court has reiterated on numerous occasions that political speech is central to the First Amendment's meaning and purpose and deserving of the fullest and most urgent application of the First Amendment. Any restriction of political speech must be narrowly tailored to advance the state's compelling interest. That means Minnesota has to show a really strong interest in order to ban this passive political speech, and it simply hasn't done that. Also, the law is just too broad, and it prohibits way more speech than it needs to. So although Minnesota can and should take steps consistent with the First Amendment to prevent overt campaigning, intimidation, coercion, and violence, enforcing a complete ban on polling places, uh, on T-shirts and other apparel that might be even mistakenly, in the case of Mitt Romney, considered political, uh, treads way too far into the realm of protected speech. 
Um, so next up is Lucia versus SEC, and I'm very excited about this case. Tiffany is excited. I don't know if everyone else will be excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think most people um, would consider this case boring, but it's, it's very important and has some big consequences. So the question in this case is whether administrative law judges of the Securities and Exchange Commission are officers of the United States within the meaning of the Appointments Clause. So administrative law judges, or ALJs, um, they're kind of little known, but sometimes they're called the hidden judiciary. So ALJs perform similar functions to real Article Three judges. They preside over hearings to award benefits and licenses. They can adjudicate claims. They can decide what evidence is admissible. And they can enforce penalties um, and compliance with the agency's rules. Um, so when the SEC initiates an enforcement action against a party, it can either um, sue in federal court or it can commence an in-house administrative proceeding. And in that case, the ALJ would preside over the proceeding. Um, now, there are a host of problems with ALJs, including, for example, in 2015, there was a report um, that the SEC prevails a lot more often in their in-house proceedings um, rather than when they go to court. I mean, color me surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, in some in some given years, their record was 100% in, in agency um, proceedings. But the issue, the issue in this case is how the SEC ALJs are chosen. So if the <laughs> SEC, the staff, rather than the whole commission, appoints these ALJs, um, and the big question is whether ALJs are officers of the United States within the meaning of the Constitution's Appointments Clause. Because if they are officers, the commission needs to appoint them and not the commission staff. Um, now, this under the statute, this is a or this is a pretty big deal because if an officer is invalidly appointed, any actions they take um, uh, would be invalid. Um, but And this is a bigger deal because the Appointments Clause is a structurally um, important clause for the separation of powers and for government accountability. Officers of the United States hold um, significant power, and we want to make sure um, that they're held accountable and appointed by appropriate um, people. So especially, especially in the context of the administrative state, um, we want to make sure people who are making decisions are appointed in, in the proper manner. So the judge in this case um, barred Mr. Lucia, the petitioner, from working as an investment advisor for the rest of his life and revoked the company's registration and assessed civil penalties. Now, this, that's some pretty um, you know stiff things for a person who might not be um, you know appointed in the pro- appropriate manner uh, with the same protections as an Article Three judge to do. So, um, and as a side note, the government, after the government filed its brief um, asking the, go- the court to take up Lucia, the SEC formally ratified the um, appointments of the ALJs in questions so that their actions would be valid. Um, but the court decided to take up the case anyway because um, it's a pretty big deal. And it has a lot of consequences for administering government in an accountable in an accountable manner. Um, there was also a Tenth Circuit case, a similar case, but the government urged the court to take up this one, Lucia specifically, um, likely because while Justice Gorsuch wasn't on the panel of the Tenth Circuit when it looked at that case, um, it looks like the Tenth Circuit was considering a petition for rehearing on banc, which means before the full court and all the judges on that court, when Gorsuch was still um, on the Tenth Circuit. So he would likely have to recuse if they took up the other other case, and that would um, uh, there would be a chance that the, the Supreme Court would split. Um, 
So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to the arguments and opinion in this case. And uh, to add a little star power to, to this case, Mark Cuban filed an amicus brief. Uh, you know, this is the guy from Shark Tank. He's uh, a big, big time investor. And he said, you know, I don't like these ALJs at the SEC because I've been, you know, hauled before them all, tri- all, all sorts of times for, uh, uh, for proceedings. So I, I think his, his brief was kind of interesting. So anyway, I want to tell you guys about another free speech case because uh, this spring free speech is, is a big thing uh, the justices are considering. So this is National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra, uh, which our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom are representing pro-life uh, pregnancy centers that are being forced by California to advertise the state's low-cost or free abortion program. So these pregnancy centers provide support for women who are facing difficult or unplanned pregnancies and encourage women to give their children the gift of life. These life-affirming and very often faith-based centers provide medical care, pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, counseling, parenting classes, and other services for free, but they do not perform abortions and they don't refer for abortions. California, which sadly leads the nation in abortions, is trying to force these centers to prominently advertise the state's abortion program. These signs have to be placed in the waiting room, making them the first thing women see uh, when they enter one of these clinics, the state's pro-abortion message when they enter a pro-life pregnancy center. So two quick side notes about California's law. It has exemptions for OBGYNs in private practice, clinics that will perform abortions, and other clinics that provide general medical care that happen to treat pregnant women. So after all of these exemptions are accounted for, the pro-life pregnancy centers are just about the only ones required to post these notices. So I think you can see the motivation of the state legislature here. Another side note. This law uh, was passed in the wake of the videos exposing abortion industry execs uh, cavalierly talking about harvesting and selling the body parts of aborted babies. So unlike states like Indiana and Texas, which chose to investigate those companies for potential violations of law, California decided to bring charges against the group that made the videos and to pass this law. So that's what's going on in California. Uh, a number of these centers challenge this law in court, arguing that it violates their free speech rights and that it can't survive review under the First Amendment. So the, the First Amendment's free speech clause protects the right not to speak in addition to the right of free speech. So SCOTUS has sided with public school students who refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance, newspapers in deciding what content to print and what not to print, and drivers who object to having to advertise the state's message of live free or die on their license plates. Some people don't like that, I guess. So the lower court here said that the pro-life center's speech is considered professional speech, Uh, which is a category SCOTUS has never recognized, and it applied a lower standard of review to uphold the state's regulation. It compared these posters uh, to informed consent laws that require doctors to disclose information about risks and side effects uh, of uh, procedures like abortion before performing those. So I I think it's pretty different in kind to to talk about a poster that every, every client, every patient sees, whether you're pregnant or not, when you walk into this center versus requiring doctors to, you know, tell you about the side effects of, of an, an operation you're going to have before you have it. So anyway, that's just a side note. So at the Supreme Court, the centers argue that uh, the court should apply strict scrutiny here, not this, you know, professional speech lower standard that some of the lower courts have made up. So, uh, and that California can't 
satisfy the demands of strict scrutiny. So, for example, there are plenty of less restrictive ways the state could advertise this program without hijacking the speech of pro-life pregnancy centers who have a very different view. They could run ads on TV, on buses, on billboards. Um, They could even include the information on their state health websites, which they actually don't do right now. They could use the network of public schools from K through 12 all the way to post-secondary schools to inform women about the program. Not that I'm suggesting they need to tell kindergartners about this program, but you know, they they do have control of of a, a pretty broad public school network. So although a lot of discussions about this case get into the weeds of levels of scrutiny and various First Amendment doctrines, at the heart of this case is the ability to speak your mind on an issue of national importance, the right to life. California is entitled to take its wrongheaded position on abortion, but it can't force others to agree with it, and it can't force others to parrot the state's pro-abortion message. So whether or not you agree with the message of these life-affirming centers and what they stand for, everyone should be concerned about the government forcing dissenting voices to conform with the state's approved message. Um, And as a side note, Elizabeth um, figured out that the judge who wrote the decision in this case um, was appointed by President Carter in the 1970s. So this just goes to show why judges are so important, um, because they can stick around for decades. She was appointed in 1979, and she is still deciding cases. So think about that. (laughs) Um, Next up is United States versus Microsoft. Um, And so the Stored Communications Act gives the government the ability to require an email provider to turn over email content if they get a warrant. Um, So in this case, the government got a warrant um, to require Microsoft to turn over information about an email account that it thought was being used for drug trafficking. Um, But the question here is whether, under the the law, the government can make Microsoft, which is located in the U.S., turn over emails that it's storing in Ireland. Um, Microsoft says the Communications Act doesn't apply because the emails are stored overseas and so refer, uh, refuse to turn over the emails. And they also argue that turning over the emails violate um, foreign law. Um, so they won in the Second Circuit and the court refused to enforce the warrant. Um, so now there's a presumption in the law that U.S. law only applies within the bounds of the United States. And with warrants, you can't use a, use a U.S. warrant in a foreign country. You have to get a warrant or the equivalent of a warrant um, from foreign authorities. Um, but the government in this case argues that the Stored Communications Act does apply because Microsoft can access those emails they're storing in Ireland um, while in the United States. So they say that U.S. law governs this. Um, it's a twi- There's a twist in this case because the Internet didn't exist when Congress <laughs> passed this law. Um, so it's, it's not a very clear-cut uh, case, and there's not a lot of easy answers. And I know there's currently some... Um, legislative proposals to address this. We had an event yesterday with um, a congressman uh, talking about um, some of those. But the outcome of this case will have some major implications for a lot of businesses. So the last one I want to talk about is, it's a big one. It involves, it may sound boring, but it's a big one. Internet sales tax. So this is South Dakota versus Wayfair. So who likes to shop online? I know I do. Any fans of Overstock.com? Wayfair? Yeah, I'm a big fan. So South Dakota is part of what's known as the Kill Quill movement. Quill versus North Dakota is a 1992 case where the Supreme Court said that states can't force out-of-state retailers to collect sales tax when residents make a purchase. So retailers need to have a physical presence in a state in order to be required to collect sales tax. 
This has worked to the advantage of online retailers, which, of course, weren't a thing when the court decided Quill in 1992. It's worth pointing out, though, that Amazon, which... uh, accounts for half of all internet sales and probably more than half of internet sales from the Slattery House. Um, (laughs) It now collects taxes in every state that has a sales tax. So Congress has been looking into this issue, particularly for the last five years, trying to figure out how to satisfy, satisfy states on the one hand, because they're complaining that they're missing out on billions of dollars in lost sales tax revenue, which boohoo for them, uh, while respecting the principle that states lack the ability to regulate activity that occurs outside of their borders. So by way of background, the, the Constitution's Commerce Clause grants exclusive authority to Congress to regulate trade between the states. So that brings us to South Dakota versus Wayfair. The state passed a law saying that online retailers have to collect sales tax, even though even those that don't have a physical presence in the state, knowing full well that this violates the Quill case and other decisions going back to the 1960s. So Wayfair and Overstock refused to register with the state to collect sales tax, and South Dakota took them to court. So this led to the state Supreme Court ruling uh, that this was this situation was indistinguishable from Quill, and in any event, it wasn't in a position to overrule the U.S. Supreme Court, and that the U.S. Supreme Court would have to overrule itself if it wanted to. So now the case is be, is before the United States Supreme Court, and at least two of the justices have expressed concerns about whether Quill holds up today in light of rapid changes in technology and the explosion of on, online sales. Uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Gorsuch are going to be the two to watch uh, in this case. So. This case could end up having a bigger impact on the everyday lives of Americans than your average Supreme Court case. So we're going to be watching it closely. And we just want to mention uh, very briefly um, two other cases. So the travel ban is back. This is uh, 3.0. 3.0, 4.0. And the justices will actually hear this case and decide whether the president's um, suspension of entry of aliens abroad violates the Constitution. Um, So yesterday, the Fourth Circuit finally came out with their opinion, ruling against the president. Um, Now, I I, which will probably not affect the the case the court's going to hear um, because they essentially have the same reasoning um, as the Ninth Circuit. But I will note that um, when the Supreme Court um, agreed to take uh, to stay the travel ban order um, or the decision. Uh, the lower court decision. It said, in light of its decision to consider the case on an expedited basis, we expect that the Court of Appeals will render its decision with appropriate dispatch. Um, While the Ninth Circuit um, did this and issued their opinion quickly, uh, the Fourth Circuit did not. And it's been (laughs) hanging around for a while. So um, it'll be interesting to see if the the Supreme Court um, kind of reprimands the the Fourth Circuit Circuit for taking so long. (laughs) And they're notorious for doing this. And it's, it's becoming a problem in a lot of cases. Um, so the Supreme Court granted a stay of the, the lower court opinion, and I think that probably bodes well um, for President Trump. So looking at cases from uh, 2005, Professor Josh Blackman um, points out that when the court has granted a stay in a case and then granted cert, agreed to hear the case, um, it reversed the lower court in 22 out of 24 cases. Um, so if tradition holds, they will reverse the lower court um, decision in this um, instance, and that means President Trump wins. So one one final case I want to mention briefly is Benesek versus Lamon, or maybe Lamone. I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be argued in March. <clears throat> so can you take politics out of redistricting? That is the question. So the the Supreme Court is hearing two cases this term. 
one brought by Democrats in Wisconsin, this was argued last fall, and one by Republicans in Maryland, which is the one that's coming up in March, uh, where they, uh, both sides, they're complaining about the way that congressional districts have been drawn by their state legislatures. So uh, the Supreme Court has previously said that this issue is not justiciable, that the court can't hear it. This is a political problem that the political branches need to figure out. Um, so I think as a practical matter, if the court ends up ruling for the challengers, uh, you know, out of either state or both states, it might as well just rename itself the uh, the Redistricting Review Commission of America, because that is all it's going to be doing. Uh, it doesn't have very much discretion in hearing these cases. Most of them are direct appeals. Um, and so after every census, every redistricting wave, there's going to be a bunch of lawsuits and I, for one, think the justices don't want to get involved in that. So we will see what happens. Um, but with that, we are happy to take your questions about any of these cases, other cases that are coming up, uh, anything about the court. Happy. Don't be shy. I want to ask you a question, Bridget Wagner from Heritage. I want to ask you a question about the podcast. Um, you have been doing it a little while now. I just want to um, have you share a little bit about some of your favorite guests and some of the other things that you do on um, other the, the quizzes and others to help those in the room who haven't heard the podcast before. Yeah, so uh, so the podcast, SCOTUS 101, as Bridget mentioned, um, we have a couple different segments that we have in, in most episodes where Tiffany and I talk about what's happening this week at the court. Uh, if one of the justices is out on a speaking tour, which the notorious RBG has been out on a speaking circuit for the last month, so there's always something to talk about with her. Um, and then we get into the cases that are being heard uh, or decided, and a lot of times we interview guests, and we've had some some really fantastic guests. Yeah, uh, and a lot of them are have been Supreme Court advocates who are actually arguing these cases, and it's interesting to get their perspectives about arguing before the court. And mm-hmm. um, you know, many of them have argued multiple cases before the Supreme Court, and kind of their favorite argument and how they've interacted with the justices, because a lot of them have clerked at the Supreme Court. Um, and it's always, it's always really fun to get their, their new perspectives. Yeah. And then we, we always wrap, uh, wrap up with a round of trivia, typically trivia, sometimes other games. And, uh, a lot of times we'll ask our guests to be, to play trivia with us, but sometimes it's just the two of us and we try to stump each other. And, you know, we've had Clarence Thomas trivia for Clarence Thomas, uh, clerks, and we've had, um, you know, First Amendment trivia for journalists who, you know, are in theory uh, experts on that. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes people do really well in trivia. Sometimes people do not so well. And they're like, mm, I don't know about coming back to SCOTUS 101. But well, I think we should give an example. So I think this is my favorite trivia question so far. Does anyone know which uh, current Supreme Court justice used to order a marshmallow chocolate chip sundae from Baskin Robbins every day of law school? <laughs> Any guesses? Any guesses? It was, it was the chief justice, <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts, um, and he's he's a pretty you know small man. I don't know he's how a pretty he trim, put trim away guy. Yeah, a, a Sunday every single day. <laughs> yeah, and uh, another recent question um, from the same round of trivia: um, Which of the justices will use contractions when she's writing a dissent? Oh, I gave a little bit away. I said. <laughs> When she's writing a dissenting opinion, but when she's writing a majority opinion for the Supreme Court, no contractions because you got to be more formal. Any guesses? Obama nominee to the court. 
Elena Kagan. So I thought I thought that's a pretty cute uh, anecdote about her. But um, anyway, yeah, we we've had a lot of fun with the podcast. We've been doing it for uh, coming up on a year in May, I think May or June. Um, so we hope that everybody will uh, will subscribe on iTunes. We can show you on your phones afterwards <laughs> if you need help. We're happy to <laughs> show you how to subscribe. Other questions? Hi, thank you so much for those summaries. Um, question on the pro-life pregnancy agency. What's the, the basis from the state that allows, that makes them think that that's okay um, legally? And also I did wonder if you guys had a, a kind of update on the gay marriage, uh, the gay cake, the bakery and the... Masterpiece cake shop? Yes. Yeah. So that one real quick, um, no update. It was argued in December. And I think this is going to be one of those ones where... They hold it until the end of June because they can't decide how they're going to, you know, rule in the case. And then they release it right before they get out of town. And, you know, Chief Justice Roberts goes to Italy and Kennedy goes to Austria to teach, although he's not doing that so much uh, in in recent years. But, yeah, I think that'll be one of the very last ones that comes out. Um, Although I have been wrong about these things, so we'll see. It could come out next week. Who knows? Um, On the California pregnancy uh, pregnancy center case. So the the state just argues that um, you know this is a, a perfectly rational regulation uh, of the medical field, and that it's it's permitted to uh, to put up these sorts of uh, to require centers to put up these notices um, because they, they I think they recognize that they can't satisfy <laughs> strict scrutiny review. So they're arguing for a lower standard of review. And uh, at the district court, they they argued that um, the lowest standard of review should apply, and that you know if any uh, that, that if there's any rational basis for this law, then it should be upheld. Um, but the lower court didn't buy that. Uh, the the President Carter appointed judge, who's still on the lower court, didn't buy that and said, no, we're going to apply this loosey goosey professional speech standard that uh, the Ninth Circuit and a few other courts have kind of made up as they gone along and I think they're hoping that the Supreme Court will adopt it, but I don't think they will. Not in California. <laughs> yeah, no. No, there's no reciprocal uh, choose life, call this number sort of thing. Yeah. The case you talked about first regarding government employees and unions, does that include the federal government employees or is that strictly municipal and state employees? So the case involves Illinois state employees. Because Um, I thought I saw something like 4 million people were involved in, no? um, Maybe that was that flyer. Yeah, so I think there are something like 7, I think I read 7.2 million um, government employees who are in unions like this. Uh, so I think it, it would have, obviously, it would have implications for the federal uh, the federal government and those employees, but uh, the case is specifically addressing... Under Illinois law. Yeah, mm-hmm. Illinois law. Michelle East and Claire Booth Luce. Do you ladies have any uh, thoughts on who the next uh, one or two resignations from the court will be? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Justice Ginsburg has said repeatedly, I'm not going anywhere. So and she's also hired clerks through uh, the 2020 
uh, term so far, which yeah. I think was meant to be an indicator that I'm not going going anywhere. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think the only um, you know viable rumors of a retirement could possibly be of Justice Kennedy. Um, there were rumors last year, and then obviously he didn't he didn't retire. But um, you know he, he uh, with the 2018 elections coming up. Um, he could have in mind that, you know, the, the Senate could, could switch and there could be, um, um, a deadlock and a vacancy for a very long time if he doesn't retire after, um, after this term. But you never know what justices are thinking and maybe he hasn't even made up his mind yet. Yeah. He, last summer, uh, he had a big reunion with all of his clerks, which they do, um, I think every few years, every four years, years, four or five years, uh, and he had moved it up a year. And so this got, you know, leaked to the press and the press ran with it. And then we've heard from, I think we may have talked about this with one of the clerks on, on the podcast, but, um, at the, at the event, he, he got up to say, I have an announcement to make. The bar is open. <laughs> so it was not what some people were expecting. Um, and it seems like he's playing uh, cat and mouse with uh, the media and possibly with President Trump over whether he's going to give up that seat. Thank you. Um, Darren Batch of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Tiffany, about the SEC case. Yes. Um, what are the practical implications of ALJs being Article Three judges in terms of Set a life appointment? Do they have to be, can they only get removed for cause? What kind of additional? Yeah, so there are some statutory protections for ALJs that um, try to mock Article 3 protections. So, um, like, they have annual performance reviews, um, for example. And I think one of the major things is that, um, so the OPM is involved in the selection of all um ALJs. So they kind of get this list of candidates and do these merit-based interviews and then um, let the agencies um, pick from there. So that's kind of supposed to remove um, some of like the politicalness from this from this process. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's there's some other statutory protections that kind of mock Article Three protections, but they're certainly not um, not as robust. ALJs. What's that? Who, who who do the ALJs report to, and how can they be fired? Can do they can they be fired for any reason, or does it have to be? I think they cause? can. I'm not positive, but I think they can only be removed for cause. Um, and I mean, I'm they're not federal sure. employees, so you know how hard it is to get yeah. any of them. And I'm not sure if it's the agency that has to um, that can remove them, or if it's OPM has to be involved. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, a little in the weeds. Um, on the, in the Minnesota case, was yeah. The, What's the standing? I mean, the the plaintiff or the whoever's bringing the case. You said that he was able to vote eventually under and, the threat of being prosecuted by the state. But he, he wasn't prosecuted, right? I don't. I don't think so. And there, there are actually a couple, um, a couple challengers, and the okay. the local Tea Party, the Minnesota Voters Alliance, is one of the plaintiffs as well. Um, yeah. So they're you know. Well, I think it might be the case that he had to um, to do some sort of provisional ballot. Do you remember? I, I don't that recall. Was sure. Yeah, I mean, I know he did ultimately get to vote, um, but I know it, it took several tries, which doesn't seem like that's okay for poll workers to prevent people for because they're wearing a you know a Gadsden flag T shirt. But anyway, all right. Well, thank you so much for having us.
Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. You can also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 or email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.